Welcome to the New Books Network. Right. Um, hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, um, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Raditya, your um, host for this episode. And today we are joined by um, Dr. Caleb Carter, an assistant professor of Buddhism and Japanese religions at Kyushu University. Um, before we get into the book, perhaps um, we can start with a little self-introduction um, for our listeners, um, Caleb, uh, who may not be familiar with you and your work. Sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on, uh, Raditya. This is a, an exciting chance to share um, this new book I, I came out with. Uh, yeah, I teach um, Japanese religions and Buddhist studies um, in the uh, international uh, master's and doctoral programs at Kyushu University. Those for uh, the acronyms for those are IDOC and IMAP. Um, Raditya will be intimately familiar as as one of our PhD students. But um, yeah, my my research interests are kind of um, broadly uh, sort of broadly revolve around the cultural formation of religious sites, um, especially mountains in Japan. Um, and then I'm I'm also interested in uh, narrative and folklore uh, issues of women and gender and the environment. Um, and uh, yeah, the, these subjects kind of come up in, in my in the book and, and in my teaching. Great. Um, yeah. So the book that we'll be discussing today um, is titled A Path into the Mountains, um, Shigendo and Mount Togakushi. And um, I believe this is Caleb's um, first monograph. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think this is a fascinating exploration into not just, you know, this mountain, Togakushi, but also just what Shigendo is and how it came to be. Um, but before we sort of jump um, into the book, um, can you perhaps share how this project came to be? Um, how did you encounter sort of Shugendo or Togakushi? Sure. I guess if I go, um, you know, way back, long before I, I knew I'd even end up on this path, uh, I was an undergrad at a small liberal arts college in Colorado, Colorado College. Uh, I was, I loved the mountains, and that's one reason why I chose the, uh, the college. Um, and I was studying philosophy there, which... Um, I really enjoyed, but at the same time, I think it felt um, somewhat abstract and and removed from um, you know society and sort of cultural history, and and that's something I was really interested in. Um, I I was interested in. Um, uh, religious questions at the time, you know, my, my, my dad is actually a, a retired Episcopal priest. And so I think I grew up with those kind of questions in my mind. Uh, I was also interested in, um, Asia and specifically, uh, Buddhist Buddhism and, and Asian religions. Um, yeah, I, again, I'd sort of grown up with watching slideshows of, of my parents' trip to Nepal and, and the Himalayas there and whatnot. Um, and so, um, I, I ended up actually taking a semester, undergrad semester abroad in Nepal, and it was through a program called SIT, uh, which trains you in language and anthropological methods. And uh, the culmination of the project was a month I spent in the Solu Kumbu region, which is kind of where Everest is. And I was um, kind of residing nearby a yak herding family and was um, learning about their uh, basically the local legends and their belief systems. And I was really interested in, in how such a kind of rugged uh, natural environment around them influenced their worldview. And I think I kind of um, took those questions. Those are sort of early um, seeds of, of my thinking um, with the research that I'd get into within Japan. Um, and after college, I, I grew more interested in Japan and ended up on um, the JET program for three years in Kumamoto uh, and used the time outside of teaching to basically study kanji and learn Japanese um, and uh, apply to grad school. And I ended up at UCLA, uh, which has a, a great Buddhist studies program. And... Um, uh, at some point, I guess when I was bef- when I was on the jet program, I, I learned about Shugendo, and for me, it just seemed like a perfect alignment of my interests, right? In you know Japanese religions and mountains and and climbing and all that, um, and so I felt really fortunate that something like that existed um, for me to pursue it as a as a uh, student 
um, in grad school. And, and so um, that led me on the path towards Shugendo. And then in terms of Togakushi, you know, Togakushi is, it's not as well known as, as a mountain like say Fuji, but um, as I was looking for uh, sites to study, cause I wanted it to be really sort of a place-based um, investigation, I came across an article by a scholar named Sonehara Satoshi, who's at um, Tohoku University. And he's got this great article on the transmission of Shugendo uh, by one practitioner um, from a mountain known as Hikosan, which is in northern Kyushu. You know, as you know, it's not too far from us here. Um, transmission in the in the 16th century from Hikosan to Togakushi. And I thought, wow, you know, this is kind of really unique that we've got actual evidence, a textual record about um, how and when Shugendo um, emerged at this one mountain of Togakushi, because often, you know, those details are sort of lost in, in history. And that was something I was especially interested in, in, in basically tracing the transmission of Shugendo uh, on a translocal level and then seeing how it um, came to a place and then um, was sort of adopted and, and um uh, adapted to the um, pre-existing um, community at at the place, so that's that's how I kind of came to Togakushi as a place of study, um, and then I ended up on um, a couple of years of research, dissertation research in um, Japan. So I was at Keio University studying with Suzuki Masataka, who is uh, a prominent scholar of Shugendo, and then taking uh, frequent trips out to the mountain of Togakushi. Um, and yeah, for those of you who have not been to Togakushi, I highly recommend it on your next visit um, to, if, if you live in Japan, to, to go there at some point or, or your next visit to Japan. Um, it's about, a, well, if you drive now, it's about an hour long drive up from Nagano City. Uh, so it's, it's up on this elevated plateau. Um, and then the, the actual peak reaches I guess it's about 1,900 meters or about 6,000 feet. Um, and it's just a breathtaking um, uh, sort of cliff line, a jagged cliff line with a lot of crags around it. Uh, and you can see why when you go there, why it really would have inspired, um, you know, religious practitioners and pilgrims uh, for, for well over uh, a millennia. So, um, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's how it sort of came to be Shugendo and then Shugendo at uh, Togakushi-san. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for um, sharing that. Um, I, I'd like to sort of start then by uh, talking about well, obviously the main theme of the book, Shigendo, um, and sort of in the introduction, you warn readers of sort of looking at sort of Shigendo as this timeless representation of sort of folk religions in Japan um, and sort of how Shinto has been problematically um, been examined in sort of a similar way. Um, and, and I think you've, you've given hints at, at how you understand that just from sort of talking about uh, transmission sort of earlier. Um, but yeah, what is Shugendo? And sort of how do we understand this tradition without sort of falling into the, the, the pitfall of uh, romantization? Okay. Yep. Great question. So first of all, what, what is Shugendo? I think that's a good question because a lot of people are unfamiliar with it. Um, it is uh, a religious system that um, forms in Japan. Uh, it's been its historical development has been kind of, um, uh, you know, posited at different points in history. Um, and it depends on how you define it. Um, I define it as this sort of self-conscious religious system that uh, really um, emerges out of the practitioner's interest in being sort of self-identifying with this tradition. So as a self-conscious system, it's, um, it, it has its own sort of lexicon, own doctrines, own rituals and institutions. Um, and so 
uh, recent historians of, of um, religions and scholars are now positing that that maybe it, its emergence happened sometime in, in the late medieval period. Um, and I agree with that. And the evidence that I find from Togakshi supports that too, in, in the case of Togakshi. Um, but essentially, yeah, it's it's a mountain-based tradition that forms out of a lot of different influences. But I think the main ones are esoteric Buddhism. So the two main branches of esoteric Buddhism in Japan are, are Tendai and Shingon. Um, both have temples at Togakshi in the medieval period, but Tendai is the much bigger presence at the mountain. Um there's other influences in, in Shugendo, um, Pure Land uh, worship, uh, Zen, um, also Omiodo, for instance. Um, there's Taoist influences and, and then local deities, local spirit worship. So it's quite a fascinating tradition. Um, now, it was actually banned by the Meiji government in um, the beginning of the the Meiji period, which begins in uh, 1868, and um, dismantled institutionally around the country, and practitioners were banned from participating in in any um, related practices uh, for uh, a while. Uh, eventually, in the early 20th century, the it. it began to loosen up a little bit and then it was fully recognized as as a um a religious organization in the post-war period um but with that ban i think uh there was a real fear that um it was being lost and so you have a couple things happen in the early 20th century and one is that um priests that maybe came out of familial um shugendo families uh, and we're now um, affiliated with Shingon or Tendai, they sought to begin studying it. And so they really um, began looking at uh, historical texts and and really emphasizing the medieval ascetic aspect of it, of, you know, going into the mountains for long periods of time, um, worshiping deities there, going under freezing waterfalls, meditating in caves, all these really kind of fascinating um, and and austere practices. Um, that was their um, emphasis. Um, so so you have that going on, and and they're eventually trying to re- restore some something of um uh, of a movement, um, which does come about more formally in the post-war period, uh, and then you also have the folklore studies uh, movement or Minzokugaku as it's known in Japan, and um, uh, it's it's sort of. The, the most well-known figure is Yanagita Kunio and his work in the early early 20th century. And, and for him, he kind of saw um, mountain communities as vestiges of uh, Japan's ancient past amidst a sort of onslaught of Western um, infiltration of ideas and, and technologies and whatnot. So um, right from the beginning with him and others, you had kind of a romanticized image of Shugendo as being um, something that preserves Japanese culture um, and, and, and also was sort of representative of a national identity and kind of a, a substrate of the culture that did not really change over time. Um, and, as Shugendo became more of a serious academic field uh, in, you know, the the middle of the 20th century and into the post-war period, the main scholars um, were heavily influenced by Yanagita Kunio and some of them had studied under him. Um, And so that's basically how the, the study of Shugendo took shape. And a lot of that, a lot of those ideas continue down to the present, although scholars now are revising that way in which we look at Shugendo. And and I see my own book is contributing to that. Um, I think it's worthy of revising because um, the way in which it's been positioned is something that is kind of um, impervious to change. Um, and so I guess in the one side of it, as a scholar and a historian, 
my goal is to um, provide a, a more accurate understanding of its historical formation. Um, but beyond that, I think uh, it's still practiced today and is being kind of um, reimagined and, and restored at, at uh, you know various mountains around the country. And um, when you when you have an image of something as kind of unchanging and permanent, it it sort of calcifies it. And so I think in that sense, what I what I want to show in this book is that Shugendo did emerge at a specific time period and and specific places. It wasn't something that just naturally existed across the archipelago. Um, and it was transmitted, you know, through through various mechanisms, and then it changed over time through various, um, you know, religious influences, but also economic, political, regional, what have you. And so, I my hope is that the book draws attention to that sense of change. Um, yeah, so so that's kind of where I see the book fitting into the the sort of study of Shugendo. Okay. Yeah. Great. Interesting. Thank you. Um, right. So, uh, the sort of three main themes, um, of the book that you sort of mentioned in the introduction are, um, sort of institution, um, narratives and ritual. Um, why are these three themes essential sort of in the case of Togakushi versus, let's say sort of the, um, asceticism aspect that, you know, um, we've seen a lot more in sort of, um, perhaps other scholarship or even in sort of some of these more, um, contemporary, um, you know, representations of Shikanda. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, of course there's various approaches and, and ways in which you could study Shugendo and, and yeah, I use these three, um, elements and, uh, the way I decided on them is basically just, you know, initially looking through the textual record, um, of Togakushi-san, these were the three things that I found, continuing to reoccur from, you know, the earliest record, which is mid 13th century up through the, uh, Edo period. Um, and, and they almost operated as sort of vectors for, um, formation of Shugendo, also Shinto, um, also, um, Tendai Buddhism, um, and, and then vectors for, any sort of changes, um, moments, pivotal moments in the history of the site. And, you know, narratives especially fascinated me. Um, you, you find uh, origin accounts known as Engi uh, at, at religious sites ar- around the country and, and of course, other um, regions around the world too. But they're often the earliest records in Japan of a religious site. Um, and they can tell us a lot about who was interested in the site, why, why they were interested, why they went there, you know, who the community was, um, the, you know, all, all of these things. Um, and, and then I think what also surprised me was that narratives tend to operate, um, as the main form of discourse throughout the the mountain's history, you know, the texts were often written for a specific purpose, right? And they often relied on historical narratives about the mountain to, uh, say, enforce a new policy um, or project a certain image of the mountain um, or to uh, adopt in a new um, form of Shinto, for example. Um, So they seem very crucial to me. And then they interweave with uh, ritual and institution too. So rituals, um, including asceticism, um, were the ways in which Shugendo, one of the ways in which Shugendo was transmitted. So um, understanding the rituals was helpful in seeing, okay, how do these rituals move into a place like Tugakshi? And then how were they adapted to kind of merge with the existing ritual culture? Um, and then the institutions, this was, um, kind of an, something for me to think about a little bit, because I think in religious studies often, you know, the formation of institutions is often aligned with a sort of, um, decline in spiritual, the spirituality of 
the religion um, in, in sort of unstated ways, I think. And, and some of this is, you know, um, probably has Protestant um, baggage attached to it and whatnot. It's sort of a, a modern phenomenon a little bit. But yeah, so sure, institutions definitely can be corrupt and represent elite interests. But um, I think that they also can represent other interests too. And, and for example, what I found with Shugendo is the institutionalization of Shugendo at Togakshi, it, it's formally institutionalized in the early 1700s. Um, this is actually in response to the um, practitioners of Shugendo, the Yamabushi is what they're called, um, who were facing competition from other established um, uh, groups, Shugendo groups, and they didn't have their own institution. Uh, they were just sort of operating on a you know, sort of freelance basis, so to speak. And so um, institutions provide that um, stability for livelihood, that um, elevated recognition that they're a member of something. Um, and then it's, it's, it's the institution that provides the sort of stable transmission um, from generation to generation of rituals and of narratives. And so that's kind of why I focused on these, these um, key things within understanding really the formation of the site itself uh, and ongoing development, and then uh, Shugendo as well as the other um, traditions there as well. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's, a, that's a very clear explanation. Um, right. So I do want to go back to and, and sort of talk a little bit more about, um, you know, all, all of these themes later on. But um, I want to start with, with narratives, right? And, and in chapter one, you, um, you discuss sort of um, the, the legend of a particular sort of nine-headed dragon that comes up a lot in, in your book as well. And, and sort of its eventual transformation into an oni as a sort of a vital part in um, the origins of uh, the mountain. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of this, um, and, and you also mentioned this in the book, but how this sort of dragon represents Buddhist influences? Sure. Um, okay, so uh, this is a story of a um, Buddhist itinerant who is sort of traveling through the mountains, comes comes across um, Togakshi-san, and... Um, is at its base and he begins chanting the Lotus Sutra. And um, as he's chanting, the these sort of noxious fumes rise up out of the ground. And those fumes are followed by this kind of grotesque figure that resides in the mountain. And it's like part demon or oni and part dragon. And it's got nine heads. And it begins to tell its story of just having, you know, really all this karmic baggage uh, from previous lifetimes. And that's why it's in this hideous form now. And, and, you know, previous itinerants have come to the mountain and they've died because of its noxious fumes. But now because it's heard the Lotus Sutra, it has become awakened and it will now become sort of a, a guardian of the mountain um, and then the itinerant looks at it and says that uh, because you're this demonic force, you need to be back in your hiding place in the mountain. So the so um, the uh, this being kind of goes back into the into this cave in the side of the mountain, um, and that's the story. And um, there's you know there's a few there's a lot of kind of things that fascinate me about it. Maybe I'll just mention a couple. Um, you asked about dragons, and dragons are have been worshipped across Asia, uh, often as local deities, but then also as guardians of the Buddha. Um, and they uh, control the weather, water, and pre precipitation. So for agricultural communities, uh, they were propitiated for rainfall. Um, or against flooding or um, uh, all, all kinds of things related to uh, rain and water. Um, and so that's a common theme. Um, now, this story, this version of the story was written from the Tendai perspective at Mount Hiei, uh, which is just outside of the capital, Kyoto. And um, so it's written from sort of the center of... Um, 
you know, the civilization, so to speak, at least as it exists in, uh, on the Japanese archipelago and from the center of Tendai power. And so, um, one thing that I think is interesting about it is it's basically imprint of Tendai Buddhism onto a, um, region that has not, at least from the evidence that I could find has not been introduced to, um, Buddhism yet. Right. And so that, that comes through the Lotus Sutra being chanted. That's the main scripture of the Tendai school. Um, but also, uh, it's in a way, it's a bit of a gaze from the center to the periphery. Um, and, and you can see that through the depiction of this creature that is fairly hideous and then is only, um, awakened and transformed by the presence of this Tendai itinerant. And so it's almost like a conversion of a barbaric landscape, which is, you know, depicted through this, through this being, um, and brought into the Tendai Buddhist sphere, right? And I found this particular, I, I found this motif in, in different iterations at other mountains around the country too, of a nine-headed dragon with the same Tendai influence. And so again, coming back to storytelling, which, what I think is interesting is that um, this was a story that you could see as being used to basically spread um Tendai, the Tendai institution, but also Tendai um, beliefs and, and practices. Um, I actually traced it back to, uh, I think, seventh century at Mount Tiantai, with, with which is the pronunciation for for Tendai in, in the original Chinese. Um, and so, in that sense, you can imagine it being part of the kind of um, uh, so so called sort of canon of stories in Tendai Buddhism, that priests would have been aware of the story from Mount Tiantai. They, they might have gone to a site like Togakshi, you know, looked up at this jagged ridgeline, which, you know, looking up at it, you could almost see like the ridge forming nine heads maybe. Um, and then thinking, uh, sort of associating it with that story. Um, so I think on a, on a lot of different levels, um, you can see the role of this story and the spread of Tendai, um, as, at least as an example of the spread of Tendai Buddhism, and then um, really the creation of a local deity out of a story that had been um, transposed from another area. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, and, and just from sort of this story, you can already tell, again, the, the, the really um, impactful role of institution, right, sort of, of this Tendai institution in um, the travel of motifs and stories of, of sort of dragons and sort of this, this sort of idea of um, pacifying local deities. Um, so another figure that you um, sort of mentioned in the book, um, very vital to sort of the, the founding of the mountain um, is uh, Gakumu Gyoja, right? Um, can you talk a little bit more about sort of this figure um, and is, is a dragon sort of involved in, in sort of this narrative as well? Or what, what is Gyoja's sort of role um, in, in sort of this narrative? Um, yes, uh, good question. Um, so the story that I just told begins with a um, kind of a nameless figure. I think the text uses the term um, Gakumon Shugyoja, which would translate into someone who was both a scholar and a practitioner, a gyoja. Um, and then the the this dragon or this, this sort of slash, you know, demon slash dragon is also this, just this local uh, resident, um, spirit at the mountain. Um, what happens if, when I went to the next iteration that exists of this story and it, it comes from what's well, compiled in 1458, um, at the mountain itself. And you see this, big transformation in both figures. And so one is that that nameless figure is now the, a, a named person, Gakumon Gyoja, really similar to the original um, language, but that's his name now. And he's considered to be the founder of the, of the mountain temples there. And then this earlier kind of hideous creature is now completely shed its 
karmic scales, so to speak, and become this really powerful um, dragon spirit for the mountain and for the region and and all of um, the uh, patrons of of the mountains temples, um, and so that continues over the course of the history that Gakumon Gyoja is now the distinct founder of the mountain temples and Kuzu Ryu, which means nine headed dragon is now the main, um, divinity at the mountain. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think an- another interesting thing about that is that again, thinking about storytelling, this story was recorded at a, at a time of great instability. So the estate system throughout the country um, is collapsing. Main economic base for uh, the court and um, the main um, temples and whatnot. And warriors are now taking over, uh, including in Shinano, the province um, where Togakshi is. And so on the one hand, I think the the compilers of this text are th- they're in a moment when Togakshi is now um, more independent from Hiezan than it was several centuries before, and can kind of you know boast a bit about its own cloud and, and founder and, and dragon spirit. Um, but on the other on the other side of it, it's a very unstable time, and, and so I think they use this historical narrative to really. Um, uh, reinforce their their foundation, their sort of cultural uh, or their sort of legitimacy um, within the region. Yeah, great. Um, thank you. Um, okay, so um, next, I'd like to talk about um, around contentious top uh, contentious topic. But you you also mentioned um, this particular topic sort of a lot in the book as well, um, and that's sort of women uh, women's exclusions from mountains in Japan. And obviously, Togokshi is not the only place where you find um, women's exclusions. Um, I think right now, at least in Togokshi, um, there are no present um, sort of exclusions or like any um signs or anything like that um that's right that yeah. Stuff, yeah but there you know in the book you mentioned that there were traces of this um sort of neonin kinsei right sort of women's exclusion in the past how did sort of this discourse of um women's exclusion influence the man in the past um and, and what kind of um arguments were um sort of presented about the presence and then you also mentioned that some actually there were actually arguments um that support um, maintaining sort of women's entry into the mountain. Um, yeah, if you could talk a little bit more about this issue. Sure. Yeah. So this is um, a significant part of Japanese history at you know various sites. Um, you know, for example, kilns or um, uh, sake kilns or um, uh, shrine entries, uh, various places, and and then mountains. Sacred mountains are perhaps the most well known. Um, of places that were uh, off limits to women. Um, there's been some great scholarship on this history uh, from Japanese scholars and scholars outside of Japan. Uh, and so I was aware of it coming into the project at Togakshi, but the evidence that I found at Togakshi really surprised me. And and I decided to spend a couple chapters talking about that because I think they disrupt some of the assumptions that we have about uh, women's exclusion from mountains in Japan. And sort of the underlying um, idea, I guess, in, in the literature up until now has been that it was um, a widespread phenomenon uh, from you know ancient or at least medieval times up through the early modern period, the Edo period, and and kind of, you know, involved mountains across the country and whatnot. And um, what I found in the records from, uh, this is again, mid-15th century, this one text that that I just described, um, there's, there's different voices talking about women's prohibitions from Togakshi within the text, which for one I thought was really interesting. But one of them is another version of the tale of Gakumon Gyoja. And he comes to the mountain and he's kind of like chased around by this crazy woman. And you know, the woman ends up being like a local emanation of a Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva Kanon. Um, but he's so disturbed, he's he he tells her, like, look, you know, from now on, women can't come here. Um, and so that's a story that 
is being posited at, at that time to justify, um, or it could have been earlier too, and, and simply compiled then, but to justify um, the prohibition of women from the site. Um, but uh, actually a more prominent story in this text is about a an adolescent girl who um, becomes an oracle for another prominent bodhisattva, and that's Jizo, who's famous, you know, in, in Japan and one of the main bodhisattvas. And Jizo speaks to this girl and says, you know, because there's this ban on women, this mountain's power is weakened. And it goes against the, you know, the words of the Buddha, uh, which I take to be Shakyamuni when he admitted women into the order. Um, and so right within that, you see this controversy highlighted in the text. Um, and then alongside that, um, pretty close to that time period, about a decade earlier, there, there are extant woodblocks um, that mention uh, the kind of temporary prohibition of women at times of menstruation and pregnancy and childbirth that during those times they're not allowed to enter the mountain. Um, their husbands are, are also cannot um, enter during that time period. Um, and so that suggests that it's not a sort of blanket ban on women, but has to do more with um, ritual um, purity and protocol. Um, now, that idea of blood pollution becomes... Um, much more pervasive in late medieval Japan. And that's due to a text that is transmitted from China that's written in China um, that, um, yeah, maybe I, I don't have to get into all that, but but essentially that, that women are uh, naturally impure because of their uh, menstruation. And so um, ultimately there's this belief that women are, um, fundamentally impure. Um, and still, I think at this time period at Togakushi, that's not totally taken hold yet, but, but you see aspects of it. Um, the next evidence of women's exclusion doesn't come until the early 1700s. So it's hard to know what happens in between, but, um, I think it's not a coincidence that it does come around that time because, um, in the early 18th century, there's waves of pilgrims that are now coming to Togakushi and, and other mountains as well. But, um, at this time, the temple administrators at the mountain decide to open up the, uh, a, a nearby mountain that's, that's part of the sort of region of Togakushi to, um, laymen but that's not extended to women. And so I think there are concerns about um, pollution to the mountain. And you can see that through actually accounts from villagers below that are worried about um, storms being unleashed uh, on the site if there's pollution on it. And um, so I, I kind of tie this in with these, these stelae that are erected over the course of the 18th century, a couple of them at different points in the mountain that are basically big signs saying that women are now not allowed to cross beyond here um, and suggest that it has to do with a lot more people coming now, concerns over pollution, this discourse on women's um, impurity and all that. But um, I guess it's sort of a nuanced argument, but I'm trying to suggest that uh, it it wasn't simply this blanket ban on women throughout, you know, the historical record at Togakushi. And that's a way of, of saying that, look, women were involved at the site. They were involved at other mountains too. Um, and it, you know, um, we should understand it as, as a more nuanced situation. Um, and then I, yeah, I, I sort of drawn some other examples that other scholars have, have pointed out at, at other sites too in medieval time period of figures like Do, Dogen, you know, um, uh, 
putative founder of, of the Soto Zen School, also criticizing um, the ban on women from mountains. And so um, basically what I'm trying to do is just show through the case of Togakshi that it deserves um, more nuance um, than it's received. And and I'll just sort of finish this thought with saying that uh, Omine-san is a mountain that still continues the ban and it's enforced through the um, local religious um, communities and, and uh, confraternities. And part of their rationale is that they continue the, the, this regulation because it's existed for 1300 years. And, you know, if you actually go into the historical records, the evidence isn't there to make that case, but it's, it's the belief again of something that's sort of unchanging and permanent. And I think in that regard, it's, it's, it's a, a bit of a subtle pushback on that idea that, that these things are, are constantly changing over the course of history and they're changing in response to different um, uh, influences at a given site. And that's important to look at. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I do, I do think with, with issues like sort of women's seclusion, for example, when when they're brought back um, into discussion sort of, you know, with, with, with um, new um, events, like, for example, um, designations um, from UNESCO or things like that, um, as, as you've mentioned, right, like a historical precedence and, and traditions and sort of even religious practices are often cited as, you know, reasons for maintaining this. You know, take a closer look at the historical documents, and often there are, as, as you know, as you're um, going through the in the book, there's different voices, right, um, voicing different types of arguments for for various different reasons. Um, mm. Yeah, great, thank you. So, um, I guess it's sort of close um, close of our conversation. Um, I, I'd like to sort of go back and and talk about this idea of transmission that you mentioned um, in the start, right? And and so in the case of Tagakshi. Um, Sort of what I understand from reading the book is that Shigenda really only started from 16th century onwards, and and that was because there was sort of this transmission from like a particular practitioner from um, Mount Hiko, and and, and sort of um, you know documents after that start showing that um, the the group of um, sort of practitioners there become much more self aware. And then sort of self represent themselves as sort of Shugendo and not just as sort of Tendai, sort of these other um, uh, sort of regular sort of Buddhist practitioners. Um, there were, however, traces of mountain asceticism even before sort of this um, introduction of Shugendo from mm. Kikosan. Uh, how yeah. are they different from Shugendo? Sort of because, you know, sometimes we hear these terms, right? Like, like Shugenja, um, Yamabushi, and, and all these different terms. And, and often, again, um, people who are not experts in the topic would just think of them as the same thing. Um, how do we sort of navigate um, sort of these different types of practitioners uh, and, and sort of. Right. Of yeah. yeah. I think it's a great question. And it's one that scholars of Shugendo will answer differently just in the way that I think um, scholars of Shinto will answer the question in the case of Shinto, which is, you know, had similar um, disputing ideas of, of when it took shape and when it formed. But I think with Shugendo, um, scholars in the past have looked at ascetic practices that took place at Togakshi and um, said, okay, this is evidence of Shugendo. So Shugendo existed at this time period. Um, and I'm trying to revise that a bit because I think, you know, on the one hand, this is true. These ascetic practices continue in the form of Shugendo, but these ascetic practices are also a larger part of a, a kind of pan-Asian um, form of part of Buddhism, right? That you find asceticism in Buddhism um, in, in Tibet and in China and the Himalaya and, and all over. Um, and so maybe it's better to think about that time period in Japan and, and those practices as part of that larger um, uh, sort of landscape of, of Buddhist practice that isn't necessarily Shugendo, which Shugendo is, is you can think of as kind of, you know, a Japanese phenomenon, a Japanese institution. Um, but, uh, you know, I also come to that conclusion because when I was looking at texts, um, these earlier two origin accounts that, that I referred to, 
um, in our conversation and, and in the book, there's just no language. There's no references to Shigendo. There's no references to Yamabushi um, or or the term Shugendo or or the the sort of le- semi legendary founder of Shugendo and no Gyoja. Um, you don't find any of that, and so that's where I first started thinking, hmm, you know, this is this is a bit strange, um, and then putting that together with the evidence of this practitioner named Akubo Sokuden coming from Hikosan in the early 16th century. Um, he came to, he, well, I th- it's not quite clear if he came to Togakshi or if Togakshi priests went to him, but I think it's likely that, you know, he was traveling to different sites and that he came to Togakshi. Um, he was responsible for compiling these large ritual manuals for Shugendo that became um, the core canon for Shugendo in the Edo period. So he brings a few of these texts to Togakshi and then um, initiates two of the highest members of the of the priestly community at Togakshi into one of the main Shugendos of, uh, one of the, sorry, one of the main rituals of Shugendo, which is um, Minaidi or mountain entry. Um, and so that there you have like ritual and texts that are transmitted through. And then over time, it, it just gets interesting looking at subsequent um, evidence of Shugendo at the site because it, it begins with uh, Akibo as this fairly generalized tradition that's not attached to any particular place. Um, even Hikosan, if you, if you look at the text, there's no ma- mention of Hikosan in, in many of them. Um, but they make it their own tradition uh, over time. And by the time you get to the early 18th century, um, they're actually able to create their own branch of Shugendo. Um, there is also a, a very influential um, priest there who's the main kind of administer of the site, very elite Tendai priest. And he, uh, again, um, comes back to the stories of the foundings of Togakshi and, and rewrites them in a way that matches the interests of um, the community at the time. And, and within his version, you now have Enno Gyoja, who's visiting the site before Gakumon Gyoja and then transmitting Shugendo to Gakumon Gyoja. Um, and so it's a complete rewriting the past. And um, I guess I'll just end it, end it by saying that um, he's doing something similar to, you know, the, the folklore scholars in the 20th century by um, kind of, Play, placing Shugendo in this sort of atemporal um, plane, or at least having ancient origins. <laughs> but the reasons he's doing it are different, right? And and for either case, they those reasons match the time period in which they're written, right? And so he's responding to the interests of the Yamabushi at the mountain at the time. And um, the fact that Shugendo has become popular around the country and many people want to visit mountains because of Shugendo. And so um, it makes sense for him to say, well, this is one of the main centers of Shugendo. Um, And so you can see over time, again, the influence of, um, I guess, coming back to the theme, right, of narrative, ritual, and institution being these vectors for um, the continuing um, development of Shugendo at Togakshi. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's still so much to go through. Um, but um, I think, yeah, we have um, taken too much of our time today. Um, thank you so much for this um, enlightening conversation. Uh, before we say goodbye, can you tell us um, what your current projects are? Or future projects um, you're thinking of um, working on from, from now on? Sure, sure. Um, I've got two projects that I'm I'm sort of in the early phases of. And both of them kind of lead from this this first book, but in, in kind of different directions. One is looking more broadly at the image of the Yamabushi um, as sort of a, a, a through storytelling, um, the cultural image, because on one hand, um, 
mountain aesthetics, even before, you know, the emergence of Shugendo, were either uh, sort of these glorified wonder workers or um, these charlatans that were, you know, up to mischief in the mountains and probably up to no good, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then I I'm I see Shugendo the the formation of Shugendo as being tied to reconstructing an image for them that's a much more positive one. And so beyond the case of Togakushi, uh, I'd like to look at that transformation over time. So that's one. And then the other project is quite different, but I guess it still remains in the, in the sort of terrain of mountains, so to speak. It's just a different path and different time period. And I'm interested now in the modern period. So late 19th century, early 20th century, looking at um, what's happening with Shugendo uh, as there's sort of early fits and starts of, of um, uh, finding some way to practice it. Um, amid the ban, but also something that would appear totally different is at this time period, uh, you also have the um, kind of advent of modern alpine climbing, and it's introduced through uh, a number of British climbers in particular, and quickly takes off among um, Japanese intellectuals, especially based in Tokyo. And these two activities, sort of mountain worship and mountain alpinism, are often viewed as as sort of separate spheres or even, you know, one replacing the other. And I'd like to kind of challenge that idea a bit. And, um, and so this project is basically finding some intersections between um, these two spheres, both, both in sort of social networks and, and also um, ideas and interests and, and whatnot. So that's the other um, project that I'm kind of just beginning. Um, I'll also note just, um, <laughs> I guess, just to finish this interview, mm-hmm. Coming back to the book. Um, okay, so here's a treat for those of you who have stuck around for this whole interview. I <laughs> uh, appreciate your patience. Um, <laughs> in the book, in the index, I snuck in a few Easter eggs. Um, I've only told you know some of my students about this and, and a couple of close friends, but but now but now I'm, I'm going to share it a bit more widely. Um, Easter egg meaning um, there are a couple erroneous. Uh, entries in the index. Um, also, I haven't told this to <laughs> Hawaii Press, so I apologize in advance of once once they find out about this. But there's a couple erroneous entries. But if you have some knowledge of um, Buddhism, um, Japanese Buddhism, or, or Buddhism more broadly, um, then you'll they provide clues um in terms of page numbers and entries so there's three of those and what i've decided to do is uh, i'll be visiting togakushi um this fall and i'll and i'll um, purchase um a number of um kind of paper amulets um with kuzu Ryu, the nine-headed dragon on them and for the first i I guess I'm going to say 10 people that can identify them and um, let me know, then I'll send you um, this talisman from uh, Togakshi and, and it can bring you good fortune in uh, your, your future endeavors. Um, so, yeah. And you can find my, my email address on, on my profile page uh, at, at uh, IMAP and IDOC. Great, thank you. Um, and on that note, please do search for those Easter eggs and um, look forward for um, Caleb's future projects. And I'll see you next time.